0: Hello, friends. We got a fascinating show for you today. Our guest is Managing Director at S3 Partners, a firm focused on delivering real-time info on short-selling and unbiased stock loan data to investors. In today's episode, we're chatting shorts. We cover the mechanics of short-selling. That is what actually happens when someone sells short of security. We chat Tesla, of course, and its status is the number one short in the market right now by absolute size. Our guest says Tesla is the longest, most unprofitable short he's ever seen. We get into S3, and the unique and frankly refreshing offering of providing timely, unbiased stock loan data to investors. If you're managing money on behalf of others, or even for your own account, and you don't know if you're earning money, or even how much, from lending your securities, this is a must listen. We talk about how short lending often provides income that makes an ETF not just low cost, but actually pays you to own it. As we wind down, we cover some of our guest lessons and takeaways from his time analyzing short interest data. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with S3's Ihor Duzanouski.
1: Ihor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Where is here? New York? New York, Long Island, actually, at the moment, working out of our offices in New York City. But right now we're in Long Island during the pandemic.
0: Well, this is being recorded on the last day of the quarter. I can't believe it. We still have three months left in this year, 2020. We'll see what the final quarter brings us. But today we're going to talk about all things short selling. One of my favorite topics and something we haven't talked about that much on the podcast. Before we get deep into shorting and all that stuff, give me the one minute overview of your background. What kind of led you to the formation of S3? What was the path?
1: Well, I started out in the controllers at Mortgage Stanley 30 years ago. I worked in New York, Tokyo, London, Hong Kong at Mortgage Stanley. Got into securities finance around 20, years ago now and worked on the sell side. So after a while, of being on the sell side, I thought I want to see the other side of the market. And Bob Sloan created this company of three partners to be a outsourced securities finance desk for the buy side. And that's where I joined. I was one of the first people who joined the firm in 2003. And we kind of evolved from just being a outsourced finance desk to using our fintech products, our systems to be a data and technology company. And now we supply data and information for both the buy itself side, but predominantly on the buy side for securities finance and pricing in the market.
0: Great. So you're one of my favorite follows on Twitter on this topic. Oh,
1: thank you. <laughs> I'll link to
0: your handle online. I mean, shorting is an area that I think many people, particularly the media, are enamored with. I also don't feel like a lot of people really understand The basics and the mechanics. Could you give us just a kind of one-on-one level overview of the short selling
1: process and what's involved? It's surprising to me that actually most of the retail side doesn't have a great handle on the process. And probably a lot of institutional guys know how to do a short sale, but really don't know the nitty-gritty of how it works. I mean, basically, you're looking to short a stock that you think the price is going down as either a hedge or an alpha play. You're going to your broker, pride broker, you're getting a locate because every short sale has to have a stock borrow because you're delivering out shares to someone. So the broker said, yes, I can do this. I can lend you the stock. So if you are trying to borrow Apple, Microsoft, Tesla, or whatever, it's usually a pretty easy borrow. And it's pretty cheap. A normal borrow cost for a, what we call a general collateral GC stock is around 30 basis points per year. So it's not a big drain on your alpha expectations. Then you've got stocks that are much more expensive like a Nikola or a GameStop, which can run at times over 100%. So you better be right and you better be right pretty quick. Because that's one thing that I think a lot of investors don't realize is, hey, I made a 20% return on my short play, but it cost me 18% in financing costs. So what was a good trade is really not.
0: I think that's a great overview. And the challenging and the position sizing and so many things go into short selling that make it A lot of people want to think it's just the opposite of going long, and it's really not. For a lot of reasons, one of the ones, which is the short seller's dreaded short squeeze, very quickly can turn into a painful sort of experience from someone who grew up retail shorting, but being on the institutional side of it now. All right. So I think that's a pretty good overview. What else? You talk about GameStop. You talk about Tesla. Tesla, I feel like is the use case that like everyone wants to talk about. Could you give us maybe just like a walkthrough a little bit about an overview of shorting? I think at one point you called Tesla the most unprofitable short I've ever seen, and I think this was pre twenty twenty. Maybe just talk to us a little bit about shorting within the context of Tesla.
1: It's funny because I just was looking up some numbers on Tesla recently. And I found that although our data only goes back some six, eight years on a stock-by-stock, day-by-day level, I went back and estimated P&L. It looks like since 2010, Tesla shorts are down around $42 in mark-to-market losses. Now, some of that is offset by convertible bonds, options, and such. But if you're looking at your P&L on the equity side, they're down around $42 billion. And they're still in it. And Tesla is still the number one short in the market. It's by far the short sellers are still holding on to their positions. It's the Teflon short. It's just every day is a new story for Tesla.
0: You touched on a couple points. One is when you talk about the largest short, do you mean absolute size, not as a percentage of the float? And yeah. maybe use that as a jumping off the point to talk about what short interest and how what all
1: that means. This is always kind of something I talk to people about, and there's a little misnomer in what in metric to use when you're looking at a short. So if you're looking at a small cap name, it's like, oh, it's got 45% short interest percentage of flow. Great. That's $40 million. So it's not really a big positional short in the world, in the US market, where he's got something like Tesla, which has only got seven uh, percent change percent of its short interest percentage of flow. It is. It's, 24 billion dollars of short interest. So you've got most big institutions have some sort of exposure to Tesla, one way or another, either on the long side or on the short side, and it's a play that just keeps going up and down. And number two is Alibaba with 11 billion dollars and Apple with 9 billion dollars. So it's by far the most popular short in the market. Uh, shortage percentage float is an interesting metric. We actually have kind of augmented that a bit, which I'll like to talk about later. But when you're looking at Comparisons to what are the big shorts? Look at notional short with short value. No one really cares how many chips you put on the poker table when you bet. You really want to know what the color of those chips are. So if someone's throwing out a $100 chip, it's a bigger bet than someone throwing out $5 chips.
0: It's funny, as we're on the topic of Tesla, as I just looked it up, it reminded me, I had an exchange with Elon in 2018 on Twitter. I'll just read you the highlights real quick because it's kind of funny. And I think illustrative of how I think about shorting, we had a old school short seller, Tom Barton, on the podcast who goes back decades. And I said he'd exposed a lot of frauds and scams, predatory. And this is one of the key benefits of having shorts is the sort of forensic ability. And Elon had tweeted, he said, what the shorts do should be illegal. And I said, look, I love Elon and Tesla, but this is backwards. Not all shorts are bad. Not all longs are good. People have incentive to kind of talk their book. And Elon started talking about, he said, shorting applied to the market a whole is obviously a net negative and incensed negative GDP. It stops private companies from going public. gets into all these sort of like weird arguments. But basically, I came into it and said, look, there's a lot of good, fun companies that do short lending and return it to shareholders. And so in cases, that is a great benefit to the end shareholders. And I said at the end of the day, it's like if you just execute as a company, you don't have to worry about what all these shorts are doing because they'll eventually get lit on fire.
1: <laughs> Any general thoughts? Yeah. One thing that people look at is short interest and say, oh, my God, it's got a big short interest. Well, if someone executes a short, that's, their effect on the market is, gone. it's finished. It's just like a long shareholder who bought 100 shares and ruined it from 50 bucks to 70 bucks. He's not affecting the price of the market just because he's holding stock long. Same thing with a short seller. Once they executed their short sale, they're not affecting the stock price. But what they do, what they are, is they have uh, dry powder. They're a potential buy. So when a short seller, whether he's making money or losing money, eventually he's got to close out his position. So he is a potential buy in the market. So there's we talk to a lot of long shareholders, alongside mutual funds, long only guys. They want to know what the shorts are doing. Why? Because if a short is closing down its position, if, if all of a sudden we're seeing short interest dropping from $600 million to $500 million, it's like, wow, shorts are getting out. This is putting upward pressure on the stock price. So when people say, oh, the shorts only kill the stock price, no, there's a two-way street in their activity. But remember, there's a lot of short activity that's used as hedging you're hedging your portfolio, you're hedging your options, you're hedging your convertible bonds. So it has a use, not just as pure alpha, it's an offset to a trade. And short sellers are also looking for momentum. So if I'm a momentum trader, I'm trading with one hand tied behind my back if I'm only buying stock. Because I'm seeing run-ups in the stock and I go, wow, hit the top. Well, smart trader, and good trader should be saying, close on my, my long, initiate a short, let's make some money on the downside and run that down, close that up. I mean, you can make a ton of money just by riding the waves of a stock as a momentum player. And that's what we're seeing in the market now.
0: Tell me a little more about the landscape of how people are using short selling. You touched on it briefly. And the first thing is everyone just assumes shorts, it's going down. That's my bet. But in reality, it's often market neutral. There's long short, there's Short against the buy. I mean, there's a million different ways that, that people kind of. Any other general thoughts on kind of, because you probably
1: get a chat with all types of, yeah, exactly. of buy side. I mean, you get a lot of analysts who are looking at a sector. So you're picking a, a sector, semiconductors, whatever it is, automobiles, and you're saying, that's a breed, worse a breed. Now you did all this work on looking at 40 names. Well, I can actually buy the best. And I'm looking at it and say, this is the best stock in the sector. Buy that one. And this is the worst stock in the center. It's going to have the underperformance. Well, instead of just buying the best, let me leverage up my position by buy the best, short the worst. And I can do my trade because I've got leverage. I can do it once, two, three, four, five times. And I can actually augment my P&L by making slightly less because I've got a net offset. But I'm doing it five times, so I'm making more on a gross. So it's allowing me to put use my money more efficiently and put on bigger bets by using other people's money, the prime brokers. Now, again, you got to be able to manage your position. There's a lot more complexity in this, but it allows you to kind of put on bigger bets and put on bets that are a little more wide-ranging in the sector. You're kind of saying, yeah, this is better, this is worse for the time being. Well, I want to offset this long with this short because I'm kind of managing my risk exposure. And it becomes more of a, not just an alpha play, not just a play to make money, but it's also a way to protect your portfolio. If I'm long a whole bunch of tech stock, you know what? Maybe I'd be shorting the QQQs. If I'm thinking that there's some sort of QQQ ETF, which is a NASDAQ ETF, I'm looking to give myself some downside. I know I love these 12 stocks, but you know what? The sector might have some issues with it. So you know what? Let me go short the sector because there might be some problems overall, but these five or six or 10 stocks are going to way outperform. That's how the shorting the ETF helps you manage your risk and give you better performance overall.
0: I want to talk one more minute about this concept of the short lending for the longs. As you mentioned, in some cases, it's basis points, but in some cases, it's dozens, if not hundreds of basis points to the fund shareholders in the vast majority. I mean, if it's not 70%, it's 90% of end investors are unaware of this process and how much it could benefit the end investor. Do you have any in general thoughts on the lay of the land on the industry? Does everyone do it? Do only the good guys do it? Do a lot of people just keep it? From the long book of people lending it out, how are people kind of going about it?
1: That's one of the reasons why we have a lot of long-only investors using our platform. We're actually helping them manage their book on the stock lending side. So a guy who is a great stock picker or has this big portfolio, of maybe a sector that they're long in a particular mutual fund or ETF, has no clue what stock is hot or cold in the stock loan market. And if you're long game stock, well, it's criminal that you're not making 100% return for your investors. It's a huge amount of money. What we see is that most of the big guys do lend. Most of them do pay back to investors. There are some that don't. Again, that's specific to each of the fund manager. There are still a good amount of ETFs and long-only guys that don't lend at all, and they always give us the "I don't want to hurt my positions by helping the shorts." The problem is, is that his incremental loan is not going to be affecting stock price that much. And basically, if I'm not borrowing from your portfolio, I'm borrowing from someone else's. It's not like you're stopping the short from, from doing his damage or his trade. He's borrowing it from somewhere else. So why shouldn't you and your investors make some money on it? And you're right, for the most part. You look at a portfolio of the s 500 names. your return is what 30 to 50 basis points. But it's still, when you're talking about on an average basis, the S&P returning six to eight percent a year. If I can knock on an extra 50 percent, 50 basis point to that total, now you've just jumped a quintile in your rankings because you're lending your stock, and therefore in a pension fund or investment for something like that, that makes a difference to their returns.
0: And it can make a big difference in a world. Where we are today, which is so many investors focus almost exclusively on expense ratio. We tell a lot of people, we say in many cases, you can have actual ETFs or funds that have a higher short lending revenue than the expense ratio. And so, in my Absolutely. mind, for all intents and purposes, you have a negative expense ratio, which means you are being paid to own this fund. And that usually blows people's minds. It's like, does not compute. <laughs> It's just something where people are like, what?
1: Not to take advantage of SEC lending is really doing the service. You know what? You can get some home runs. I mean, there are some stocks that, like you said, 10%, 15%, 20% for a good amount of time. And also, you're not just covering expenses. You're creating alpha.
0: How much does the loan rate vary? I mean, is this like a day-to-day thing? Is this like, yeah, it's pretty stable? Does it vary? The example you were using is GameStop or even something like, An Apple or Tesla, is that something that changes not really from month to month or it changes a lot day to day?
1: In general, there are some 12,000, 15,000 shorts in the US market. Most of the names are really small, have small short interest, but on average, the average stock borrow fee is around 70 basis points for everything. And now you've got the GC, which is 30 basis points. So the interesting thing with stock loan, it's not a linear increase of rates, it's exponential. So basically, everything is GC, 30 basis points, until it's not. And you might go through, over 90% of the stocks are GC, or easy to borrow. Your Apples, your Exxons, you know, all the easy names. Now you get this inflection point where utilization, where usage of whatever stock is available to borrow gets to a point where rates go up. And then things go up really in an exponential way, where you go from zero, 30 basis points to one, to five, to 10, to 20, to 50 problem is not many stocks get in that far into that curve, but when they do, rates go up a lot. So like I said, over 90% are going to stay around GCD, 30 to 50 basis points. Then you've got probably another 5 to 8% of stocks are going in that 1% to 5%. And then the rates change on a daily basis. So basically, if I'm going out there as a stock loan guy, I'm shopping for not only rate, but I'm shopping for quality of borrow. So if I know that you have a fund that sells the hell out of his churns his book all the time and so in and out of stock well for me to borrow your stock you have to give me a better rate because i might have to replace that stock borrow pretty soon if i'm talking to a pension fund that basically holds the stock for 20 years because you know they're not sellers they're just accumulators well then i'm going to pay a higher rate to borrow his stock and it, it kind of keeps going that balance keeps going up and down the lender's job is to kind of make sure that they get the best rate possible so it's kind of like a auto dealer that says, hey, this is the last red Corvette on the lot. You better buy it now. It's gonna cost you 20 grand over MSRP because it's the last one. Well, the thing is he's got 20 other cars in his back lot, but he's trying to make you think that there's not many cars out there to buy. So as a lender, he's trying to increase his bar rates. As a borrower, I'm trying to shop the street and get it as cheap as possible for my short seller. So it's always this market dynamic in that stock loan.
0: And a lot of people unfamiliar to the area get concerned because they say, well, there's risk involved. The short seller may go bankrupt and blow up their fund and never return the fund. Walk us through how that actually works with posting collateral. What's the typical sort of ballpark collateral today
1: that people ask for? It's a great point because people are scared because they hear these stories about stock loan blowing up a fund. And Now they're short cash and they've got to close up or release a show a big loss. Number one, there's no real losses on the stock loan side of the transaction. Every transaction that stock loan is marked to market daily with 102 to 105% collateral. So if I'm borrowing $100 worth of Tesla, I'm putting up $102 worth of cash. And the lender holds on to that cash, he takes that cash and he reinvests it. Now, that's where the issue is where do you reinvest your cash? And that's where the risk is. And that's what the lender has to take care of, but it has nothing to do with the specific stock loan transaction. So if on a daily basis, if my stock price goes up, I got to put up my collateral, If my stock price goes down, I get collateral back. And that cash exchange happens every day. And it basically keeps the lender safe and keeps them solvent. What other lenders do is they also minimize their risk by minimizing their allocation and their concentration to various counterparties. So if I'm a lender... I'm not lending all my stock to one prime broker or one short one hedge fund. I'm saying, hey, my systems are smart enough to say I'm only lending out 40% or 30% or 50% of my any particular name to any one user. So I'm spreading my counterparty risk. So it's not just risk of mark-to-market price risk. Now you got counterparty risk that you're kind of taking care of by spreading out to your positions. You know, if one hedge fund wants another hedge fund wants it, it's easy to spread out your risk.
0: I imagine a lot of people are listening and say, why wouldn't I just go and buy the top 10 or 20 most shorted stocks and lend them out? Even if it was 10% revenue, that would be a pretty great revenue. Any general thoughts on that? Why isn't it that easy? Why doesn't it work like that?
1: Well, the biggest prime workers do that all day long. What you're doing is you're going long, the biggest, most expensive stock borrows. You're hedging them out using either options or ETFs or swaps you're kind of hedging out some of your risk you're just earning earning that stock borrow fee that's you're able to do that because most of the street is not really educated in what the fee is so if a option writer doesn't realize that his r in his calculation is got it should be over 100 because that's what the stock borrowed fee is and he's pricing it using 50 60 40 whatever rate he is he's underpricing his option so as a broker or as an investor who's really adept and kind of looks at the market and go, holy crap, I can actually buy this stock, lend it out for 100, buy an option to hedge myself. I got no risk on the price and I'm making a net 30, 40% return for the duration of my option. So yeah, it happens. We have clients who do that. There are prime brokers that do that all day long. There's a lot of money to be made.
0: One of the biggest challenges as a quant I spent years ago trying to model out the various impacts of strategies that involve shorting stocks. And one of the biggest challenges you see in a lot of the short academic literature and implementation is, to me, it's not necessarily that grounded in reality, potentially, because it's so hard to find the stock data and it changes so frequently, and then it's fragmented and it doesn't go back that far. All these things, I mean, I was trying to come up with all these different strategies, and I'm like, how do these people make all these assumptions? Because that's not probably what it <laughs> would have looked like in the past.
1: Yeah, this is your Econ 101, where your professor says, I'll well, assume a risk free trade with no transaction costs and automatic execution at the perfect bid ask. It's complete garbage because unless you have this data, you really can't make those kind of a lot of the things that I see in these papers don't really work in real life it's a great idea and it makes kind of sense and they educate the ivory towers but when you're out there hitting the bid that's not exactly the way the market works we actually are starting to give our data out to some academics to use in their reports and their research because we do have daily data and they come in and they see our data and they go holy crap I said I've never been able to see this before I said yeah our algo calculates intraday, short interest, so you're getting your daily day. And I go out, we have a stock loan desk, and that goes out to the street. So I'm pinging the street to see what the rate is on Nikola and the rate is on GameStop. So I'm not just getting feeds or whatever. We're actually seeing what the true market is, and we're adjusting our system to say, yeah, a rate on existing trades on GameStop is 55%. We're seeing new borrows at 100 to 250%. So the, we're telling you what the incremental piece is as well as the existing cost. And that's something that maybe a short sellers really don't understand, is that stock loan rates are very, very sticky. They go up slowly, they go down slowly. If you own a share of IBM, everyone's getting the same price of IBM at 401. Stock loan, one guy's getting charged 50%, another guy's getting charged 25%, another guy's getting charged 150%. All are fair and good rates, because it depends on when you got on the position, how big your position is, and where your position is sitting. So if you're in a shitty broker that's charging you a huge VIG on their side to borrow the stock and you got in late to the trade, you're paying 150%. If you're at a good prime broker, you're a good client at the prime broker, your position is not huge, but it's a big, steady position you had on, you're probably only getting charged 50%. So there's a huge variability between rates.
0: We're chatting mostly about the institutional world. I had a tweet the other day. This is getting a little off topic, so we'll come back to a topic, but it's a normal conversation with me. And I said, if you think about the traditional retail brokerages, there's like four main ways traditionally they made money. One was commissions, which are for the most part gone. One is interest spread on cash balances. Your money is in cash at zero. They invested at a higher amount. And that's a big one for places like Schwab. And the other two, there's short lending revenue and also payment for order flow. And I said, I was curious. I said, I wonder. It's very one-off, bespoke, and traditionally focused only on high net worth. I said, I wonder. If you'll see any brokerages develop that offer to share part of that revenue with the end investor, is that something you think is possible, improbable, likely, none of the above?
1: It's actually happening, shockingly. We've got some of the big retail brokers actually have an internal stock loan desk, which is sharing revenues with their clients. The catch is they're not offering necessarily. You have to ask for it. So if you don't know that GameStop is doing 50 to 100% fee, they're not saying, hey, take some of my revenues. But if I go to them and say, hey, I got a fully paid for account. Let me open up a stock loan agreement with you because there's a lot of technicalities and letting stock and say, hey, take my GameStop and say, you know what, great. We'll pay you 45 out of the 50 or whatever, and you're going to earn some income. What they will do, though, if they see an expensive stock that they really need, then they'll go knock on your door. So if I need Nikola stock, because I got a lot of people looking to short and I can't get my hands on stuff, they'll start knocking on these long shareholders door and I'd say, hey, you know what? Guess what? Yeah, I can make you 15% return if you lend me your Nikola stock. And then you'll get this uh, action on the stock loan stuff."
0: What's Nikola going? What's the rate ballpark right
1: now? Nikola, it's a lot less. It's around 10-ish now. It's come down quite a bit.
0: It's interesting. I was laughing so hard. when. All the retail brokerages started to go commission-free. I don't even, was that this year? This year, last, yeah, year? I can't last year? Yeah, basically last year. And Schwab, Charles Schwab came out. And look, they've been a industry pioneer, but I'm going to give him a little shit here because he came out in public. He's like, I've always hated commissions. I want them to go away. I'm like, oh, really? You've charged them for 40 <laughs> years? And just now, just because everyone else went to zero, you're finding religion? Come on. And so this is sort of a similar concept I'm thinking in my head where no one is going to do it until their hand is forced. But it seems like you could come up with a brokerage that says, look, you pay us a certain fee, whatever it may be, basis point or percentage of. But if you framed it as yield or say, look, you're going to. Potentially get this much yield on your account because if we do all these things, we share in the payment for order flow, we share in the stock lending. Anyway, someone listening, take
1: the idea and run with it. I don't want to do it. Too much work, but... (laughs) No, you're right. There is a lot of cash. People don't understand how much cash flow there is in a brokerage account. The different ways that brokers make money or cost them money. I mean, you're going out and taking that cash and you're reinvesting in certain you lending it to other clients that have had a fake. You're taking the stock and you're lending that. I mean, I remember one time, again, I know the market. So I was looking, we can't invest in stocks because I we see too much data. So we could do ETFs. So we have a whole period for the ETFs. So I saw a long, short, short play in some fixed income ETF trade. I want to go longer, some of the longer yield ETFs, so to go shorter, one of the shorter yield ETFs. So I put the trade on and I know that the rate was around a one, one and a half percent. So I get my brokerage report and this is what retail investors should really understand, find where the stock loan costs are in your brokerage report. It's buried. It's hidden, it's in a column that you really don't understand. So I'm looking, I see this 7% cost. I'm like, what, what the hell is that? So I kind of dug through a little further into things. I said, oh my God, you charged me 7% for the stock borrow that I know is going for a point, point and a half. So I called up my broker and I said, all right, what's going on? I don't know, that's the rate. I go, listen, I trade with your guy that lent you the stock. I said, let me call Mike and tell him that I will get him the stock so he can replace it and charge me the parent. No, we can't do that. At one point they were charging 600 basis point spread on the stock borrow. Now it's kind of turning around where they're not doing that because the noise and the knowledge is probably there where shorts are finally starting to, or even long shareholders holders are finally starting to realize the assets they're holding. I love it when I, I mention somebody, you mentioned my Twitter feed, I'll mention it to a couple of my Twitter guys and they'll come back to me and say, Wow, I'm making 3% on this stock that I never knew I could make. I said, yeah, it's good for you. You take taking advantage of what the market really is. This is the whole key
0: on everything involving Wall Street and our world is you have to find a partnership where the interests are aligned and where people are on the same side. And I'm giving Schwab crap, but they have an offering that's a fiduciary offering their robo-advisor that intentionally puts people in a huge cash slug paying essentially, it's like, I don't think it was 100 basis points lower than it could have been, but it's close. And I made the argument, I was like, can you be a fiduciary and do that? I don't think you can. Anyway, find you someone who is on your same side in every aspect of not
1: just finance, but the world. It's a big deal when you talk about making sure that you know what's going on. I mean, stock loan can even turn a trade into a winner or a loser because of the cost. So if you're a long stock that's earning 3%, but you can make 10% on the stock loan side, hey, you know what? I might want to stay in that stock. So it's a big investment decision.
0: It's like when you think about the things that people consider, particularly on the retail, even professional advisors, one of the challenges, there's not that much info and it's also backward looking for funds. You can put it in, I think the prospectus or annual report on how much revenue you got from the stock loan, but obviously it's not going to be the same going forward. It would be nice to see Morningstar start to incorporate some of this or some of these fund websites incorporate the amount because it's often far more significant than the expense ratio. While we're on the topic of ETFs and funds, any general takeaways, trends, how things have been going? Have they changed the game by the baskets and the passive over the last decade
1: or so? Any general thoughts there? On ETFs, what I do know is that the stock loan has become a bigger portion of their activities. We have a lot of guys on the ETF side that are actively lending. I think they're actually making some investment decisions on some of their long only positions based on what they can get in the market. So if I'm torn between holding a couple of names, even a, whether it's a bond or an equity, and I can make an extra couple of points on the financing side, that affects their decisions now. What we do is we give ETFs and long only guys the insight into what their portfolio is making. So like you said, it can cover expenses, add to their alpha. And it's funny because on the short side, we're seeing people trading ETFs and actually I'm seeing less activity than some of the like ETFs that have higher stock borrow fees. So, I mean, in this world, there's so many ETFs that are so close in performance and holdings. I'll actually see some of the more expensive stock borrowed ETFs on the short side go down and a like one go up. And I'm wondering what's going on. I realized that it's some smart investor who realized, hey, why am I shorting this one, this S and P 500 ETF, at paying 80 basis points? I can, buy, I can I short this one for 30. So it's not only just management fees; it's also stock borrow fees on the short side that matter.
0: We have good friend Corey Hofstein, who once jokingly years ago said. There was a particular corporate bond ETF. It may have been J&K, but sort of irrelevant. And this was a while back. But there was a pretty high stock borrow on J&K. And in tongue in cheek, he says, I'm going to launch a new ETF. All it does is own J&K and lends it out. And it's going to have a higher return than buying J&K. And I was like, this is some sort of like Russian doll.
1: That is so true.
0: The math works out. He said, I can make a spread. But I thought that was really funny. But it's really interesting you point this out because the considerations people put into picking a fund, and like you mentioned, there's so many that even if they have different indexes or approaches, are essentially the same fund. This has been going on with active mutual funds for decades, where they're kind of closet index versions of each other. And so the thing that everyone looks at is expense ratio. Maybe they look at trading market impact of the bid ask and liquidity, but the next one being the short lending revenue could be bigger than both. And taxes, of course, some people think about taxes, but it'll be interesting to see much more of the trade optimization by allocators based on that concept. And I actually don't know, this is a good question, and maybe you know more than I do, do most investment advisors, so RIAs, financial planners at Morgan Merrill, wirehouses, but plus all the independents, I don't think they do short lending on the majority of client portfolios by default either. Do you know?
1: Yeah, back in the day what we used to do was we would actually contact these guys when I worked at the Warren Sally Stock Club, Desk, we actually call them up and say, Hey, we'd look at the big holders of a stock and say, Hey, your guy owns this. We'd find out who the RA was and uh, we'd say, Talk to him, let's see if I can borrow this stock. I mean you would hope that eventually you'd have this, especially with the ease of information flow now, that a investment advisor should have a screen that says Here's a return on Apple. And here's also the stock loan revenue you can generate. So this way, at least they can help do their fiduciary responsibility and blend out the stock. So
0: where do they go for that info? And this could be a good transition into what you guys are up to at S3. If Joe E-Trade wants to go find stock borrow rates, like, is there an accepted place to go? Is it pretty opaque? Is it impossible to find? What's the sort of status quo?
1: You can always call your broker. But again, that's his viewpoint. So if you got a guy who has no book in this name and is calling up and say, "Hey, what's this rate?" Yeah, you know, he gets off market or scale rate. What we have is a black app, which is our most profitable, most active use on our system. And you get it through Bloomberg and Refinitive, and we have a retail app that's kind of scaled down version of that. And basically, you can put in your portfolio and you can see what stock loan activity is and stock loan rates live real-time on your portfolio, on your stocks. And we have the stock loan desk, which is myself and a couple other guys at S3, that we have phone calls and emails all day long from institutionals and large individuals that say, hey, I'm long Turtle Beach. And I hear that's got some stock loan returns coming. What's the rate today? So I can go back to my broker and make sure he's paying me a fair amount. So the Black App is a Big seller for us. The clients love it because you can actually populate it with your own portfolio and manage your own book. And you'll see historical stock loan activity. You'll see historical rates. You'll see what's going on in like security. So if I'm long one name and I'm saying, well, I want to be what's going on in the other names in the same sector or the same family of stocks, you can, you can kind of check it and see what the stock loan activity is on those. What were you saying? It's called the Black App? Yeah, it's called the Black App. And it's the number one to retail. A selling app on Bloomberg. So you know, we've really got a lot of good traction there. We also provide the data. If you're on Bloomberg or Infinitive, or we provide data to FACSAG, we provide, provide data to NASDAQ. The short sides so will tell people what the short interest is and what rates are in, in stocks. We're trying to disseminate the information because it doesn't exist anywhere. It doesn't exist in a timely manner or in a unbiased manner elsewhere. Like I said, we don't hold positions. We don't trade. We're basically collecting data. Normalizing it, using our algo to kind of get it cleaner and better. We spin it out to the market and say, hey, use this because it's something that you need to do to make your investment strategies better.
0: What's the most typical client breakdown for you guys? Is it buy side? Is it sell side? Is it short sellers? Is it data providers?
1: It's hedge funds, hedge funds and long only guys. So we first started out servicing the hedge fund industry, but ended up being a big provider to the long onlys. Just because, like you nailed it in the head, it's an opaque market, and they were getting not the fair end of the stick with a lot of their revenues. These long side guys really like to see number one what kind of income they're going to get, but number two they want to know what the shorts are doing in their names. So if I'm along a long stock and I'm seeing the shorts building position, maybe it's time for me to take a look at that stock and say why are the shorts coming in hard. Is it time for me to get out, or should I have to revisit my investment strategy? That's been a big piece of our analytics is, is people want to see rotational moves. They want to see that, hey, the shorts are getting out of one sector, getting into another sector. Where are the moves? Everyone knows what the long side's doing, but not many people know what the short side's doing.
0: You guys put out a lot of pretty in-depth research and for people that want to get in the weeds, we'll we'll post show note links to your website and some of these articles. Maybe touch on some of the ideas you guys are thinking about, excited about. You have a pretty fun article talking about short interest and better ways to think about that as a percentage of float. Any of those in general you want to talk about that you guys have been researching and thinking about?
1: Yeah, that's actually one of my little pet projects there. I kept getting questions about some ETFs that had over 100% short interest percentage of float. XRT was one, it's, it's a handful of them. And a handful of stocks that also have higher than 100% short interest percentage of float. And I couldn't really, the guys would be asking, how is that possible? I go, well, it really isn't. I mean, you can only get, you can't get five quarts of milk out of a gallon jug. There's only so many stock borrowers out there. So there's no way to to have 120% short interest percentage flow. So I sat back and said, why is that happening? And going back to my controller days and prime broker days, I was like, wait a minute, let me just do the flows of a transaction. I realized that every short creates a synthetic long. So you as a beneficial owner lending stock and the short seller selling it, well, there's someone buying that stock. So the beneficial owner is still long the stock. Short seller is short the stock, and that new buyer is long the stock. So in effect, you've got two long shares and one short share. Well, that long share can now be re-lent also. So that's sitting in a private brokerage margin account or in a hedge fund that has the stock re So now the private broker takes that one share. He can lend it out to another short seller. Then another buyer buys that. So now you've got three shares of stock instead of one. So it doesn't change the market for the company itself they're only paying out one dividend, they are only getting one vote. But in the middle, you've got three guys that actually have long exposure to the stock. So what we've come up with is the S3 short interest venture flow, which basically gives you really what the float is. So something like GameStop, where it's not at over 100%, it's actually 57%, which is more realistic, makes more sense. So we're basically saying that it's float plus the synthetic longs. It's really what the denominator in this formula should be, not just the flow. That's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of giving people an idea of really how many shares are really tradable in the market.
0: What are some of the ways that people use y'all's data or just short data in general that you think is interesting and under that same sort of questioning any best practices or do not use it this way because that's really dumb. Just any general thoughts on how kind of People interpret or misinterpret some of the stuff y'all put out?
1: Everyone's a great buyer of stock, whether it really is or they think they are, but they're good on the long side. Most people understand they're not really good on the short side. Some people do. Some people are good. Some people are just kind of faking it and shorting whatever they hear. What we're able to do is create idea generation for for uh, funds and for investors. If I give you a list of, if you're saying, wow, semiconductors or something, really, I'd like to short some names there, I don't need to have a team of 60 analysts going through the semiconductor stocks, maybe I can just look at what the big movers in semiconductor short side is and follow along. This market is no longer a pure value kind of play market. It's really a momentum market for a lot of names. So why don't I get on the wave? So we have a lot of investors that are looking at our the shortages action in the street over the past week or past month and say, wow, everyone's shorting the hell out of the stock. Why? Oh, that makes good sense. Let me get in. So I don't have to have a three week process where my analysts are trying to find the short. Other people have found it right. Let me just ride the momentum. So there's a lot of momentum investing, which is the primary, seems like the primary investing that's going on in the market now are using our short side analytics to find the big momentum movers on the short side.
0: And by piggybacking on those guys, you don't have to pay two and 20 either. That's a big big benefit. I mean, we wrote a book on 13F investing on the long side and found that often you could replicate the returns of a lot of these hedge funds. And in some cases the returns were actually better because you weren't paying that huge VIG on what they're up to. Obviously they on the long side you can't be trading that hyperactively, otherwise it won't show up in 13F. 13Fs may be changing anyway. There's a bunch of new SEC proposals. We'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Even on the ETF side, I was looking at fixed income ETFs. And by looking at where the shorts are going in and out of, you know, I noticed that, wow, the shorts are going into the high yield ETFs and actually covering the treasury ETFs. So they're saying, wow, you can kind of get an idea of what's going on in the fixed income market or in any sector just by seeing what the shorts are doing as well.
0: You've been commenting on this space for a while. And nothing really is more entertaining than the battleground stocks in short sell. I mean, Tesla has been like the case study in this over the past few years, and it's resolved in a very dramatic way, at least for now. And then on the flip side, you have the Nikola. Any other stories that you can recall that are particularly memorable when it comes to the short world? I mean, whether it's Volkswagen or you go way back, X. Anything that comes to mind as a way of also thinking about a case study of how this works out and plays out, all that good stuff?
1: Yeah. I mean, recently had Wirecard, which was another big name that the shorts were in. And it was, again, another tesla ask. We had these long shareholders that love the stock. And the short guys are coming in hard and heavy. There was a lot of writings and commentary that really, the stock sucks, the stock's a fraud. And the longs come back and they say, you guys are idiots. It gets really vocal on both sides. But Wirecard was one of the, again, recently played out where the shorts were right. And short interest was steady, surprisingly. I thought for a while there with all the commentary and the regulars coming in. And I thought the shorts would acquiesce and kind of leave the trade. They didn't. And they ended up making a nice P&L on it. But they had to stay in and take it on the chin for a while. Volkswagen Porsche was just, that still gives me the acid reflux. That was just nasty. It was quick. It was nasty. I was on Morris at the time. It was just a trade that happened so fast where the shorts got absolutely crushed. And we were sitting there trying to borrow stock, trying to help a sell with a basis, help the position settle, get people out of the position. And you really couldn't do anything. You were just sideswiped. And you have to watch out for stocks. You have, recently you had the leveraged oil ETF, D G AWF, I can't remember. Where Shorts lost hundreds of millions of dollars because the stock price went up to $15,000 a share in a couple of days. So if you weren't able to get out of your trade, so I can see these retail, because who's trading to leverage ETFs? Well, mostly it's retail guys. You don't see many of the monster hedge funds trading 3x leverage ETFs. So I was sitting back, I go, oh my God, these guys got obliterated. They're going to come home. They're getting a call from E-Trade or Schwab and saying, hi, you owe me $600 million in collateral on a $50,000 position. That was scary. I mean, it's just going to show you that you have to watch out on the short side because you can get killed. But that's such a one-off thing that's, I don't know how the exchange let something like that happen.
0: Some of these stories give me sweaty palms. Listening to the shorting has always been near and dear to my heart. I think it's really hard. All my favorite short sellers, like the forensic accounting guys, they all have at least one, maybe two screws loose. They're all just, and I say that in the most loving way possible, they're all a little bit wonky. And I think they do such a fantastic community service, but my God, is it a hard job and they ha- must have a high tolerance for pain. What do you think, can you make a generalization? I mean if you can't, that's fine. As far as looking at like high short interest or other indicators the batting average of the shorts, are they right a minority of the time? Or are they right 90% of the time? Is it something that on the extreme examples, they're often right? Any general thoughts?
1: You know what the problem is, is that we're an upward trending market for a long time. So the shorts got that going against them. They have two strikes on them right off the bat. So Buffett who said that doesn't matter that you're right, it matters whether the market thinks you're right. So these guys might have the right idea, but if you've got the crowd, Pushing a stock up, you're going to lose money. So, we do see a lot of names, a lot of short sellers who are wrong just because right idea, market won't look at reality. For the most part, I don't think that most short sellers are profitable in a lot of their trades because they're not managing it right. I think that whereas a long seller is better at riding profits and cutting losses. We see a lot of positions and short sellers kind of holding on because they know their thesis is right. They know their conviction is right. So I think they hold losses. A lot of times they're right in the long term. But in the meantime, they're taking a lot of mark-to-market losses and a lot of red ink to their PL. If you look at Tesla, they're up recently. So it's a timing issue. It's like if you bought it a year ago, you're getting crushed. But if you bought it a month ago, you're up. So short selling and timing is a big deal. You, got, you have to know where to get in and out of trades. A lot of even institutional and retail guys are great at buying stock. They're not so great shorting. It's a craft which takes some effort and some seasoning. And I think that using something like R, and you didn't have the information. That's probably one of the biggest things. You really didn't have the information on a lot of short selling. So you use something like our system where, hey, this stock is getting short a big time. Get a little bit of that research already, get a little bit of the momentum, run with that, and I think you become a better short seller. Don't go against the tide.
0: I used to say, and this is just an observation, I don't know how accurate it is, I'd say my belief is that most of the traditional long short equity guys use shorting as a PowerPoint justification for charging two and 20. And I say many, at least my experience as an allocator over the years, it's not their strong suit. I personally would much rather have a dedicated short seller who's lived through a handful of years because like you mentioned, position sizing and risk management, it's not just about being right. It's about how you approach the portfolio that has enough scars front and back of their chest that they've somebody like a Chanos, but then having the, you Martingale keep going up against a position and it's a tough
1: game. Guys with short names, and they get run out of short zoom communications you just get crushed and you get crushed quick. So if you're not nimble and say, "Wow, well, I guessed wrong or I thought the rally was going to end and I want to get in early and take the whole downside, well, maybe you should wait and see the momentum down and then get into your short position. So it's like, guys in that Zoom video, they've you know, been down over a billion dollars this month in the to market P&L. So it's a $3 billion short down a billion dollars. So tough to explain it. <laughs>
0: From someone who's had his fingers dirty with the data, probably more intimately than just about anyone out there, any other just kind of lessons learned over the past number of years? And I'll include under that umbrella lessons learned, anything you've particularly changed your opinion on over the number of years with
1: thinking about shorting and the data? Probably the best short sellers that are on our platform that we know of don't spread out their risk too far. So you got to pick a handful of names that you're really, really sure of, that you really can manage. And I don't see them putting on 70 names. They're putting on 5, 10, 15 names, following that, putting on a big chunk of, you know. So if you have conviction, follow your conviction. There's too many short names, which lose money. So it's like if you spread out your assets too far, you're just taking losses in a lot of names. And your two or three winners, the profits in those two or three winners get eaten up. But the big thing I think now is I'm seeing is, is quickness in the market, totally different from before. Before it was a lot of best in breed, worse in breed trading. You're doing sector rotations. Now it's like I see short interest going up and down really, really fast in a lot of names. So people are going in and out and kind of chopping in saying, hey, this name is it has got some weakness. Let me short it for a while. Oh, look at that. That one's, going, that one's getting weaker now. Let me get out of this one and get into this one. So we're seeing a lot more movement between names. It's a quicker market on the short side than I think it used to be.
0: Did sort of the volatility both down and then back up this year, did that affect a lot of the stock borrow or short landscape at all? Any general summaries of the first few quarters of 2020?
1: With the bottom in the March, we saw some short selling into that, not as much as I thought. I thought there'd be much more shorting into that drop. And I think people on the short side, or at least hedge funds or institutions. We're looking for a floor quicker than it actually happened. So I didn't see as much new short selling during that March weakness. And again, on the upside, you know, I saw some short covering, but again, I think people were kind of holding on to their positions and kind of saying, okay, this is going to come back. What we're seeing now within the last month, I'm seeing a lot of short covering. So it seems like the market or on the short side, it's saying that the downside is over or it's kind of flattening out. And we're ready for an upturn, which kind of surprised me at an election. I thought that the shorts would be piling on a little bit more, but we're seeing some significant short covering in a lot of sectors. And we'll see what happens next two weeks.
0: This has been unbelievably interesting. I'm gonna wind down with a few last questions. What does the scene look like outside the US? Is it as developed with the data and the analytics? Do people approach shorting and lending the same way? Is it something you can even get the same amount of data globally? Do you guys do it at all? How's that look?
1: Yeah, we cover 40,000 stocks worldwide. So we do actually have a big presence overseas. Europe, Asia, Hong Kong, China, Japan, all of Europe, Australia, we cover all the markets. What we do, you don't have the bi-weekly regulatory reporting that you do in the US, but you do have like an you know, ESMA has disclosures on holdings over 0.5% to the public. We use that. We have other sources of data on transactions, trade volumes, and such. Our algorithm kind of uses all that and, and gives us short interest for all the major names, all the major countries. Short selling is not quite as big in a lot of these countries, again, because a lot of times. It's limited regulatory-wise. There are certain countries which stop short-selling at the drop of a hat if something goes wrong. And there's a lot of rules of not being able to short-sell certain stocks. A lot of it's done in swap or other derivative forms. It is active. I mean, there's a ton of short-selling in these other countries. And I think that the spreads are a little bit bigger on the stock loan side. It's a bit more expensive short. So there is more income to be made if you're a long shareholder in a stock that's uh, hot short. But the US is by far the biggest market for short selling now.
0: I'm always surprised when governments try to go the route of suspending short selling in a sector. I mean, the US has done it in the past, and it seems like such a boneheaded move to me. But what do I know?
1: No, it doesn't work. (laughs) That too. The pricing doesn't reflect the effort they did to stop the short selling. Longs can still sell. You know, crazy, you stop the short sellers, but longs are still selling and driving the price down. So I don't see unless you make all selling illegal and it doesn't really make sense.
0: Hey, don't suggest it. The politicians may <laughs> listen to you. are do you have a most memorable investment over your career? Anything that comes to mind that you think about, good, bad, in between? Anything that just burned into your memory?
1: Personally, no. Unfortunately, every place I've worked at, I can't buy or sell stocks. So it's, I've been sitting on the sidelines looking at names. And I go, God, I wish I could do that. So I don't have anything personally. What I do see on the side, I still look at These tech stocks that I thought were overpriced at $200 a share, $150 a share. And I'm saying, oh my God, these are all triple digit names. So I think that what we got is momentum market. And I think the shorts, if the shorts look at the momentum side of the market, as much as the long sale, I think they'll become more profitable. I think it's something that retail investors and institutional investors can do more often and really make a big effect to their net alpha in their portfolios. Everyone should have a short.
0: I think I need to implement that rule in my company is you can't own any security. My life would be so much happier. I'd remove <laughs> all the stress, blood pressure grows down. I don't have to watch the markets anymore. I love that idea.
1: Yes, but that's about it. Ehor, where do people
0: go? They want to follow your writings. They want to get in touch with your company to chat about what you guys are up to. Where do they go?
1: You can catch me on Twitter at s 3 We have a website, shortsite.com. Which is our website that we put up. Actually, most all my research goes on there and a bunch of other commentary from other guys in our shop. We have on Bloomberg and Refinitive our black app. So you can type in black app and buy it from the stores there and, and kind of use my data in your investment decisions. And we have a retail app too that you can actually catch on shortsite.com. So we wanted to have something for the retail investors who are in on these major data distributors for them to be able to see what's going on in the short side. I think that's helped a lot for the guys who really want to try to short to have an idea of what's going on in the market.
0: For the newbies out there, it's a deep, dark, one of the most interesting rabbit holes on the planet, all the interest on the short side. We'll add some links to some books and some other resources too in the show notes, mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Ihor, this has been so much fun. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, man, it's been great. I really enjoyed it. And hopefully we can do this again and maybe talk about some stocks in depth and help more guys on the short side. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at Mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the MebFavorshow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.